a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a documentary titled Human Nature on the CRISPR technology, something that I know very, very little about. And my current guest was uh, prominently featured in it. He was talking about some of the ethics of CRISPR. And so I reached out to him and he was kind enough to come here to chat with us. Professor Fyodor Yurnov, how are you doing, sir? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. So let me just tell you a bit about uh, this gentleman. He's a professor of genetics, genomics, and development at UC Berkeley. First uh, conference that I ever spoke at or presented my work as a graduate student in 1992 was at UC Berkeley. His research interests include, quote, the development and advancement to the clinic of novel approaches to treat human disease using CRISPR-based genome and geno uh, epigenome editing. Some of you may know that in 2020, uh, two scientists won uh, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their work in, uh, on the CRISPR technology. So I guess the first question, uh, Fyodor, would be, speak to the layperson, what is CRISPR? It's a word processor for your DNA. It sounds futuristic, but that future is here. Um, if you, were if you were to tell somebody in the 19th or for that matter, 19th century, for that matter, somebody in the 1950s, that there would be a little box on your desk and you would, could pull up anything from Moby Dick to a 240 character tweet and then pushing little buttons in front of you, change it at will, you know, the 19th century, in fact, the 1950s person would ask what's wrong with you. So the, when, when I compare CRISPR to a word processor for uh, DNA, I do this with a due sense of awe. Make no mistake about it. We've never had a technology like this since you know, DNA was discovered to be the genetic material in the 1940s. We've known about the way it comes together since the 1950s. We've been able to read it since the 1970s. Um, and now here we are in 2021, and we can change it relatively at will with extraordinary precision, as if you were clicking with a mouse on a very specific section of text, and extraordinary efficiency, efficient enough to where, as we'll probably talk in a second, last year, a human being with sickle cell disease had several hundred million of her blood stem cells taken out. A gene edit was performed on them. Essentially, all of them were precisely gene edited, and then they were put back in, and a year plus later, they're all alive and well and appear to have resolved all severe symptoms of her sickle cell disease. So we have moved completely out of prototype, you know, hypothetical dreams on pages of science fiction novels and through early stage proof of concept and all the way to clinical reality. That's what CRISPR is. Let's, let's drill down further because while the analogy to a word process is a great one, it still leaves most people confused as to, you know, how does that analogy work exactly? So. The human genome is made up of, you know, a bunch of discrete, you know, the typical, the four letters and so on. And we can, we can put, how many, how many are there that you could put in the human genome in, in the billions, right? What, what is the number? Oh, the, the billions is flat. It doesn't sing. But let me, let, let, let me give you a, a sense of the scale of the human genome in more human terms. Imagine you had um, a textbook to read it, the whole thing. First of all, you need 500 textbooks. That's how long the genome is. But and now imagine you start reading it one letter at a time. A, G, C, A, it would take you a century to read the entire human genome one letter at a time. Um, it's 6.6 .6 billion letters. But again, it's a bit like saying the earth has seven plus billion people. It's a number that's so large, it's hard to grasp. Yep, it right. would take you a century to read the entire human genome. So now you've got this whole sequence, however many pages it is. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say CRISPR goes in and edits a particular section, so, so the first premise there would be that I know unequivocally that this, the, the place in the genome that codes for sickle cell anemia is exactly that and nowhere else so that I can target that. So that would be the first thing that I would have to know, right? But for example, personality traits, it's a lot more difficult for me to know where... Uh, you know, assertiveness is coded in the genome, right? It could be in many different places. Many different genes could be involved there. So, so is, the, is the technology of CRISPR restricted to cases where I absolutely know the exact location of where to go in the word processing document to edit those particular letters? 
you know, with great power comes great responsibility, right? I forget if this is Spider-Man or something more philosophically deep. The magnificence of Jennifer Doudna's here at UC Berkeley and Emmanuel Charpentier, um, Nobel Prize winning discovery of how CRISPR works, is that technology is agnostic to the editing that it drives. In other words, you can make a change, whatever, you, whichever one you want. Question is, what are you doing with it? So the moment we step away from the very narrow focus on how CRISPR itself arrives inside a human or a cow or a rice cell, and CRISPR has successfully worked in all of those settings, and we have routed CRISPR using the Doudna Charpentier Nobel Prize winning discovery rules to gene number one or gene number 57, with gene number one maybe being something that causes severe disease and gene number 57 something to do with personality. Uh, at that point, the technology uh, the, in the narrow sets kind of stops and what begins is the human element. Why are we doing the editing? What outcome are we expecting from it? And to this, we have to bring not only, you know, the technology progress of the past decade, but, you know, 35,000 years of development of human civilization, morals, ethics. Um, and I can tell you that all of us in the field, every single person who has been working on gene editing for the past you know, quarter century that it's been in the works, are frankly mortified at the notion that um, the fruit of our joint labor will be used for, um, how do I put this, quixotic or Icarus-like applications where pe people try to fly to the sun using wings of wax. Um, our primary focus, because it's new technology and it's clinical track record, or in fact it's track record in the real world of agriculture, for example, where its promise is enormous, um, you know, just to give you a sense of how significant the ag promise is, the Innovative Genomics Institute, where I have the honor of working, uh, that Jennifer Doudna founded, um, its mission is to use CRISPR to improve public health. And what are we doing? Well, of course, we're using CRISPR to try to treat disease, but um, an equal size effort is to use CRISPR in agriculture, because we all believe that uh, making the next generation of uh, crops to feed a growing and warming planet will frankly have a bigger impact on humanity in the next 50 years than, you know, being able to treat, use CRISPR to treat disease number four. Don't get me wrong, we're passionate about treating disease. So, so back to what we're doing with this technology. There is a big difference between saying, here's a specific disease, sickle cell disease, which is, causes severe pain, or congenital blindness, which needs no explanation, or taking a thing, something like, you know, rice um, dying of high temperature or of severe disease. So in those settings, you go in with CRISPR, you make the desired change and expect a very specific outcome. No more pain. You're able to see now. The rice plant is able to tolerate a higher temperature due to global warming or is able to tolerate being attacked by some terrible disease. And on all the way at the other end, you know, at this point we smoothly transition into, you know, brave new world and notions of, you know, genetically segregated groups of humans that have been engineered in one way or another. Um, all of us right now are very focused on the former. How do we do relatively, quote, simple, unquote, edits to humans or crops or animals with very specific goals for improvement of the planet and are frankly shying away as best as we can from notions that we would, we would take this technology anywhere beyond that for now. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, every technology initially has an application and suddenly becomes relevant in entirely new settings. Um, and there's no question in my mind that in the long term, CRISPR gene editing will find its applications in, in, in realms of human existence that we currently can't even imagine. And in fact, for rec recently, uh, work from Jennifer's group and other groups has produced a way to use CRISPR in something completely different, which is CRISPR as diagnostics. And in fact, again, here at the Innovative Genomics Institute, um, we, uh, we have a lab to test for the virus, and we're actively exploring ways to use CRISPR to test for SARS-CoV-2, because it could be faster, it could be more sensitive, and we're not alone in doing this kind of work. So we, I can't really predict which way this is going to go, but I'm super hopeful that the next, let's say, five to ten years will be exclusively focused on severe disease, safe the planet, that kind of stuff, rather than, you know, and now 
let's try to write anti-utopias and cast films with, you know, Ethan Hawke um, in Gattaca Part 2. Right. Again, forgive me if any of the questions are, are too basic, but remember that our audience are made of very intelligent people. Many times they may be laid to, to the topic that we're discussing. Uh, does, does a CRISPR intervention work both on somatic cells and germ cells? Can, can, can you make an intervention on person A and then that is passed on? Or in the, to use the, I mean, I guess that's a Lamarckian type of question. Or is it, you know, when you, when you circumcise Jewish boys, uh, their sons don't are not born circumcised, right? There, so there is no theory of acquired trait, right? There is no Lamarckianism when it comes to at least the most basic of our understanding of evolutionary theory. So, how does the CRISPR intervention work? Can it work on both cells, or is it largely within the confines of that person's lifespan? You are touching on one of the most profound and oh. let me be clear, uns- unbeknownst to me. <laughs> unsolved right now by all of us challenges in the future of CRISPR. Um, I love the way you phrased it in terms of circumcision, because the way you did so evokes one of the most distinguished scientists in the history of my field, which is genetics. Uh, his name was um, August Theodor Weismann, and he is one of the founding fathers of genetics for a very profound discovery. And that is that the body of a living thing in fact, it's two separate things. It's the body, which walks around or grows. And then it is what Weissman called the germ plasm. It's a really awkward term. Uh, what he meant was the reproductive system, the part of the body that produces the next body. And just like you, Weissman has argued that millennia of various practices, uh, such as uh, circumcision uh, by uh, observant Jews, or, for example, foot binding, um, in yeah. certain parts Chinese. of Asia, have not yeah. produced newborns that are circumcised, nor have produced uh, children with smaller feet. Right. And of course, once uh, this was connected, um, and this wasn't didn't actually happen until much later in the in the twentieth century, um, with uh, an understanding of how Mendel's laws, discovered in the mid eighteen sixties, uh, and Darwin's uh, notions of how living beings uh, uh, arise by natural selection, all of this came, came together to basically repudiate the entertaining but erroneous visions that Lamarck had for all of us, which is, you know, a giraffe grows taller because it reaches its neck to, to grab a fruit, and then its body somehow communicates the need to have a longer neck to its offspring. That doesn't happen. It just doesn't. Until CRISPR. Right. It is absolutely possible in principle, to use CRISPR to genetically engineer a human being's, quote, germplasm, or in English, reproductive system, to have that genetic change transmit to their progeny. Now, right now, uh, in very practical terms, if you wanted to do that, and I really, really hope nobody listening to this wants to do this because it's neither safe nor ethical, um, you would probably do what a a tragic and painful figure in the history of humankind, frankly, a, a person named Jean Cuehe allegedly did when he took human embryos and injected them with CRISPR and then in an act of breathtaking, ill-advised hubris meets Napoleonic goal, I don't even know what negative turn of phrase to use here, um, his effort led to the birth it is alleged of two children, we're all, um, our deepest heart's wishes are that the two children are safe and well. Um, this should never be done again, in my personal opinion, but in practical terms, it can be done. And so when you ask me, uh, you know, can CRISPR breach the barrier that existed unbroken until now between the body uh, and what happens to it? and uh, how whatever happens to the body is passed on to future generations. Yes, CRISPR can breach that boundary. And wow. I, I am deathly apprehensive. So, I mean, I, I wonder if you're familiar, are you familiar with the Dutch famine studies? I, I yeah. deeply, deeply familiar, and, I, and I, I've been teaching it in my classes. Oh, there you go. So, 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 so those studies seem to be suggesting that Lamarck could be 
you know, turning in his grave saying, hey, I told you so. Yes, maybe it may not be relevant to explain the, the evolution of a morphological trait like the giraffe's the size of its neck, but those studies certainly point to the fact that there's something that's captured in what is now referred to as the epigenome, right? So is, is CRISPR straddling that discussion? I mean, I, I guess... So, yes, I guess from what, yeah, it okay, is. Exactly. And in fact, uh, and this again is uh, a work from Jennifer Doudna and um, Jonathan Weissman uh, at UCSF, um, CRISPR can change the epigenome as well. And now to, to, to uh, take a short step back to not mortify your audience with yet another term, <laughs> um, genetics is DNA, right? A, C, G, T. We have genes. We have about 20,000 of them. If you look at, to your left or to your right at your fellow human being, there is a single genetic letter different about every thousand letters or so. And those differences explain some fraction of why we're different. Some... Which, by the way, let me, before you go on, let me interrupt you for a second, Fyodor. In a sense, it is a very liberating message because it demonstrates that we are so much more alike than different. Right? I mean, if people truly understood genetics, they would understand how astonishingly similar we are, notwithstanding our differences in skin color and height and so on. Right? I mean, in that sense, it's a kind of a socially justice congruent discipline, right? I know this is two professors at distinguished research universities basking in the glory of our egalitarian worldview, but yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I, I should also point out uh, uh, and honor the memory of, of, of a great scientist, Richard Lewinton. He was a professor yes. at Harvard. And it, in fact, the, the, the data that you are alluding to and the implication of those data for, you know, the fundamental kinship of humanity and a focus on that kinship rather than Huxley like, oh, I'm an alpha. I'm so glad I'm not a beta. And, and all, 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 all of that nonsense. It's, Richard Lewinton is one of the key figures in the history of 20th century biology to draw first attention to that point, which subsequently has been um, supported by 50 years of, of, of m m deta detailed studies. So yes, it's absolutely true that uh, we are highly genetically kin. You look to the left, you look to the right. Every thousand letters, there's a single difference. Not, 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 not that different. Um, but then where things get um, nuanced, and let me emphasize that this is interesting nuance. In other words, this is not detail for purposes of details, because of course, as scientists love to get lost in the details and lose everyone else in the process. Um, our genes, the DNA we get, they learn from experience. So as we are born, or in fact, as we're in, in, in our mother's womb, and as we are born, um, every bit of exposure to the world of every flavor, this could be what mom ate, um, this could be how we were delivered from mom's womb, what did we eat, uh, the, the world, how did the world around us, our genes remember, and how do the genes remember? Well. You know, we are used to the notion that some ex environmental exposures can actually change DNA. And this is why you have to wear sunscreen, uh, because uh, your sunlight will change your DNA, and those changes will cause cancer. This is why it is highly advised to not smoke tobacco, because tobacco has chemicals that will go into the DNA of your lungs and change it and cause cancer. But the majority of exposures that we have to the world don't really change our DNA in any, in any substantial way. But what does happen is our genes listen to the world. And I, I'm using highly anthropomorphic language. I, can, I, I will switch to molecular in a second. And what changes over our lifespan is, if you will, a sort of makeup. If you, if you, if you think about sort of the concept of makeup and how humans since the beginning of time have been applying things to their exterior in order to change the way they present themselves to the world. So DNA acquires makeup as well. And it's, all, it's not magic. It's not, you know, uh, pixie dust uh, or uh, made of mysterious material. We know what the biology is. The biology is there are specific chemical marks that are put on the DNA. Now, they don't change the letters of the DNA, but they change what the DNA is interpreted as saying. So, for example, let me give you a, a public health relevant specific. Folks, eat a lot of fiber. Why? Because it will keep your colon healthy. Why? Because the fiber ferments in the gut and the products of that ferment
fermentation protect the DNA in your gut from losing the ability to fight cancer. So the DNA stays the same, but if you eat a lot of fiber, then the fermentation byproducts will keep the makeup, the epigenome of the cell, of the DNA in your cells, healthier. And it's just an experimentally established fact. So CRISPR can be used to change DNA. So you go into a cell and you change one letter to another. CRISPR can be used to change the epigenome as well. Namely, rewrite the molecular makeup, the, the sort of the, the eyebrow liner or the lipstick or the what have you, or the body art um, over certain stretches of DNA. And some of this will last. Now, before we envisage a future where everything goes according to Lamarck, and people use CRISPR to epigenome themselves and their children, um, I want to emphasize that this is still a matter of much research and, frankly, uncertainty. It is unequivocally the case, and I think the, the, the horror of World War II is, is you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, the worst tragedy, tragedy in the history of humanity, um, but the out of tragedy came the profound learning that um, exposure of a fetus in utero to a particular set of environmental stimuli that only mom experiences carries through into the newborn child, into the adult state of that child, and appears to then carry through into the children of that person. So. These are grandchildren of women who suffered in World War II. What's happening there? Has their DNA changed? No. The implication is something in the epigenetics has been altered. I want to emphasize that to, the, to what extent these kinds of phenomena are common, again, huge amount of uh, uncertainty. But in principle, does this chart out a concept where CRISPR-based epigenome changes could be heritable? It does, I hate to say. Again, wow. Um, we, uh, I, but I want to caution against the, the notion, you know, oh my goodness, what have we unleashed? Um, this is early technology. Um, the overwhelming majority of its applications are to treat genetic disease, infectious disease, such as HIV and potentially COVID-19, to treat cancer, such as leukemia. Uh, and I am emphasizing that all of this is actually happening. This is not a this is not a headline in a, a journal of the future. This is a, a, an entry on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, so this is, the, which is, a, there's a big difference, right? <laughs> um, but I think now is the time in, in, the, in the history of our species to ask ourselves, okay, we've acquired Google Docs for our DNA. Now what? What are the, what are the ethical guidelines, if there are any so far, in terms of what CRISPR can be used for versus what it can't or shouldn't be used for. So, for example, okay, let's 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 solve uh, sickle cell anemia, anemia. Fine, great. Let's change the baby's eye color to be as beautiful as those of Professor Gatsad, a beautiful green. Maybe we shouldn't do that. That's too vain. So, is there a set of guidelines, bioethical guidelines, that you know the the, the great people who are working in this field have come up with, or is this still a work in progress? Where are we? No, this is actually. Yeah, oh, I'm very happy to speak to this because uh, a key part of the effort here at the Innovative Genomics Institute um, is to drive forward ethical applications of CRISPR while doing what we can to communicate to the general public what, what we should stay away from. So what's ethical right now? For human beings, what is ethical is the use of CRISPR to treat existing severe disease. And let me, let me walk through, there, there's actually, I, I, I made, there's more than one key point in that simple sentence. First of, all, first of all, let's talk about the word existing. Right now, the only type of clinical trial in the United States and in Europe that has been authorized by the Food and Drug Administration stateside or the European Medicines Agency uh, in, in Europe is to treat human beings who are currently gravely ill. And I'll give you specifics. Sickle cell disease is a, is a grave condition. A related disease of the blood, of red blood cell production, thalassemia, is grave. 
and people with it have been treated with CRISPR. Congenital blindness is devastating. A person, in fact, probably several, have been treated with CRISPR. Leukemia is existing and devastating. Again, there has been a CRISPR trial. Most recently, um, we've heard the remarkable news that the biotechnology company Intelia became the first one to inject CRISPR into the bloodstream of six individuals who have a severe existing genetic disease which harms their nervous system and their heart. And so, right now, whether you show up in front of the FDA in the U.S., EMA in Europe, Health Canada in Canada, or the Therapeutics Good Administration in Australia, or any such regulator, the only path forward is if you say to the regulators, we would like to take adult or pediatric subjects with existing severe condition, and we would like to CRISPR them. Any, any application um, other than existing disease will be not allowed. Then the other word is the word severe. You know, some things are chronic. Um, you know, let's say rheumatoid arthritis, it's devastating. It's inflammatory bowel disease. I just named two autoimmune conditions. It's terrible. You know, multiple sclerosis is, 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 is profoundly painful. How about migraines? You know, um, they are terrible. I, just, I, I received a letter recently from, from a human being with um, a severe migraine, and, and they wrote to me about what it's like for them to be who they are and to, to carry the horrific burden of being incapacitated by this awfulness. So um, we have to be incredibly careful and it is, in fact, um, a, a very firm regulatory stance of the FDA in, in the U.S. and the EMA in Europe that the disease has to be severe. And this is because we don't know what the uh, long-term safety consequences will be, will be of CRISPRing anyone for anything. And so we have to be incredibly mindful of complying with the laws of um, protection of human subjects and research. And there, the, the central principle is the principle, again, a, a, an eloquent, a single word that speaks very eloquently to all of us, the principle of beneficence. And it means you must maximize the good. You have to go above and beyond your call of duty to do good and to minimize harm. And the principle of beneficence argues that we, can, we should only treat really severe disease. And that doesn't mean that rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease are not severe, but there is a difference between those chronic conditions, which are currently somewhat managed by medication and, you know, leukemia, which is about to kill somebody in four months. Right. Um, how do we, before you go on, how do we, how do we get, since you, since you refer to the long-term effects of a CRISPR intervention, it, how do we establish that, right? I mean, we can go in, change something in the genome so that the person who suffers from sickle cell anemia is alleviated of that burden or that condition, but then through for example, a pleiotropic effect, a downstream effect that it can affect a different set of genes. How do we know that you changing the word processing document at position X doesn't have some downstream effect, you know, anywhere else? How, how do we establish that? You just used the word that I wished was part of the common vernacular and not just subject of, you know, genetics professors standing in front of their upper division um, undergraduate class. Please. And evolutionary psychologists who know a lot. Oh, for sure. Pleiotropic <laughs> is Greek for in many places. It means a single change that has multiple consequences. Right. Um, and we don't have to go far. Sickle cell disease is caused by a right. single letter. You know, I talked about having the, the human genome takes yeah. a century to read. Imagine you're reading two such century-long books, and one of them, you make one mistake once in that century. And if, 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 if that... Genetic, if that mistake happens um, in a specific gene, one called HBB1, or hemoglobin beta um, encoding subunit, you're in trouble because you're going to get sickle cell disease. And its single, single genetic change will cause acute episodes of pain, susceptibility to stroke, uh, susceptibility to pulmonary complications, um, a vascular necrosis, which basically means your, your joints are severely irreparably damaged, um, kidney damage, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. So a single genetic change, multiple consequences, pleiotropic change, pleiotropic effect. 
by the same token, I'll give you a specific. We don't have to go far. Across the bay at UCSF, uh, scientists have discovered that a single genetic change uh, in a gene called DEC2, which doesn't say anything, has a remarkable effect. People can sleep four hours a day and be just fine. So, 64,000 letters of genetic code question. Should we be giving everybody that genetic change? I certainly would sign up for a life where I could sleep only four <laughs> hours. Um, and the problem is we don't know if that change is pleiotropic. We have, it's very difficult to find out if you know, we give people the short sleep state and what, will, what else will happen to them? Well, is it almost, I mean, combinatorially, is it not pretty much intractable to ever be able to answer that question? Well, okay. So it really depends on whom you're speaking with. Um, folks of my persuasion, which is, and I want to be clear, I'm talking about 20,000 people and more. Um, uh, in other words, scientists who are using CRISPR to try to improve human health argue that, you know, if we're, if we're working on something legitimate in the name of betterment of humankind, then we should seriously consider it. Now, giving people short sleep is currently, you know, not high on our agenda. But if you want to make a change that we think would help people, then there are FDA-prescribed uh, experiments you have to do on animals of various sizes. You start with mice, and then you proceed to monkeys and see what happens. And I'll give you an ex a specific from yesterday's headlines. Um, there is a biotechnology company called Verve, V-E-R-V-E, -E, there in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And they've recently described a remarkable set of studies where they've used a new flavor of CRISPR called base editing, developed by David Liu at the Broad Institute, to change one gene. Now, the gene has a boring name, PCSK9. Um, but uh, what's really interesting about it is people who, very rare people who have a different form of that gene are more than 80-fold protected from heart attacks. Wow. You know, I know. And, you know, as you can tell from my name and accent, I am um, uh, Russian by ancestry. And, you know, the Russian national breakfast is eggs fried in butter. <laughs> Not exactly the American Heart Association specified... Vis Although we don't know anymore, because now I hear some cardiologists saying that it's completely false to worry about eating eggs. So can I, I talk to those know. cardiologists? Because I love that kind of food. Um, but so imagine a setting where we tell people, you know what, enjoy the third croissant with an extra side of lard. Um, and because we've just CRISPRed you and we've given you this heart disease protective gene. Um, so this is not science fiction. There is a biotech company run by extremely sophisticated and accomplished physicians and scientists who is going to actually do that for people at major risk for heart disease. But the reason I brought that up in answer to your question, can we ever know whether a change is safe? Well, complete safety can only be established from an extended track record. And as the COVID experience has shown, some rare safety signatures can only be seen after you've treated millions of people. You know, the AstraZeneca vaccine is associated with clots, but we found that out after, you know, tens of millions of individuals have received the vaccine, right? So in this case, the, the regulatory standards, so the, what the Ministry of the Food and Drug Administration or the EMA will tell you, go do this experiment on non-human primates, which is monkeys, <laughs> and, uh, and see what happens. Wait, look, make, make sure that the animal is okay. Make sure that the desired effect is there. Now, a monkey is not a human, but experiment, experimentation on humans is called a clinical trial. And you're not allowed to do a clinical trial unless there's a very strong justified need. And uh, in this case, it's severe disease. So to be clear, I want to emphasize that what Verve is trying to do right now and other companies doing similar things in these kinds of disease areas, they're not proposing to take, you know, a, 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 a Berkeley professor of Russian ancestry who is currently healthy, I hope, and CRISPR him so that he can enjoy his morning eggs and butter. No, right. that, is, that, that is wrong. That is not what to do. Um, they're proposing to treat people with severe genetic forms of heart disease, uh, lipid metabolism, which causes severe life-threatening risk, and try to protect them. And if that were to be safe and effective, okay, well, then we can talk about using this for disease prevention. And, you know, many in your audience, I imagine, um, are uh, taking a statin to, you know, keep their blood chemistry healthy. Uh, but most folks don't probably are, would be surprised to know that statins were not developed initially to prevent heart disease. They were developed in the 1980s to treat severe existing genetic heart disease. And when they were used, they were shown to be safe and effective. 
And then clinicians and scientists who were looking at the data went, wow, does this mean we should be using it for sporadic heart disease? That's not severe and genetic. And that was done and look, that looked great. And then gradually, as, as this treatment moved from uh, being able to help rare folks with genetic conditions to then being applied to a broader group of folks with existing disease, the, the regulatory authorities around the world have said, fine, let's just, you know, let's just allow physicians to prescribe a statin for heart disease prevention. That is the well, I don't know if that will happen for CRISPR, but I hope it does, because again, um, a, um, a butter is tasty, but not good for you. <laughs> and butter is tasty, and we're attracted to it for evolutionary reasons, right? We've evolved our gustatory preferences in an environment of caloric sparsity and caloric uncertainty. So it only makes perfect adaptive sense for us to to want that extra piece of but buttered. Uh, you know, I, we, we, you and I could have a fantastic conversation about this. I've, uh, I've had the good fortune of traveling only a little bit in Asia, but I can tell you that after a week in Japan um, or um, a week in, uh, uh, let's say, Guangzhou, and I've done both, you know, there's just not a lot of butter around. Uh, there's just like the, the, um, and there's not a lot of cheese. And I, I thought I could not live without cheese. And then three days of You're okay. you attending, attending a conference in Kyoto, suddenly the, the, the broccoli and tofu seem really yummy. Uh, so it's kind of, I, I'm, it, it, it would be fun to ask. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's no question that genetic differences track with diet. Uh, and the two sure. greatest examples, of course, is milk. Uh, uh, Milk-producing animals have been domesticated at least three times in the history of civilization in the Middle East, in Europe, and in uh, certain parts of um, uh, um, Africa where pastoralist agriculture is practiced. And the domestication yeah. of the animals has led to the genetic evolution of humans to be able to... Well, I actually lecture about this. It's called, as, as, as you know, gene culture coevolution modeling or dual inheritance modeling. And so I precisely use the lactose intolerance story when mm -hmm. explaining that model. So great. Yes, I'm with so you. I'm not, uh, there's no doubt, you know, if we carefully genotype a bunch of Russian and French people, maybe we will see that we love butter genetic change. I don't know if that exists, uh, but, but um, you know, talk about epigenetics versus genetics. Our genes and our minds learn from experience. Uh, you know, I've, after, I've lived in Berkeley for 21 years and, you know, extra virgin olive oil is pretty good. Uh, and I didn't believe you me. I did not grow up on extra virgin olive anything. Well, I'm from Lebanon, so olive oil is uh, pretty much like water for us. Uh, let me ask you a question that kind of tries to join some of your world and mine. So I, I work in the area of evolutionary psychology. I specifically apply evolutionary psychology in studying human behavior in general, consumer behavior in particular. And one of the things that I often explain to people to, to, to explain to them the value of an evolutionary lens is the distinction between approximate explanation and an ultimate explanation. Are you familiar with these terms? I am. Theodore? Yeah. I so am. let me explain for maybe some of our viewers who may not know. Please. So approximate explanation is what most scientists do. It's the how and the what of something, explaining how the, mecha the mechanistic explanation of the, of the phenomenon. The ultimate explanation is the Darwinian why. So for example, I could study pregnancy sickness from approximate perspective. How do changes in a woman's hormones affect the severity of her pregnancy sickness symptoms? But the ultimate explanation is that women have evolved this mechanism uh, because during organogenesis, during the first trimester of their pregnancy, they don't want to be exposed to teratogens, food pathogens mm -hmm. that might wreak havoc to the developing uh, embryo uh, fetus. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's kind of an insurance policy. So that physiological mechanism, the aversion to certain foods, the attraction towards pickles, for example, serves as kind of an antimicrobial, antipathogenic mm -hmm. mechanism. Okay? Now, when I look at CRISPR, I see it as a very mechanistic thing, right? That's mm -hmm. beyond my comprehension, but it's in proximate world. But is anything that was resolved in the CRISPR technology, did it come from an evolutionary understanding of things? Or could someone have developed that technology without any knowledge of the ultimate Darwinian why? Do you follow what I'm asking? I do. Technology development is, as you well know, seldom a linear path and Genome editing uh, in its present day form is a, is a large, large quilt 
with many tiles that have um, arrived from distinct destinations. And just, just to give you a, a, a brief uh, preview and uh, credit and honor the, the scientists who, whose curiosity has brought us here, um, we need to mention um, a scientist at the University of Utah named Dana Carroll, who studies how DNA changes bits in frogs. Again, not exactly a cure for sickle cell disease. We need to mention a scientist at Memorial Sloan Kettering named Maria Jason. And she basically studies uh, how DNA damage is repaired. Again, not exactly sickle cell disease. And then, of course, Jennifer Doudna um, and Emmanuel Charpentier uh, were just recognized with a Nobel Prize for making probably the most important scientific discovery of the past 25 years that gave us CRISPR technology, um, they did not set out to build an approach to change DNA. They were driven by curiosity about these extraordinary machines from, from the realm uh, of bacterial defense. I think if, if I were to take a step back and look at the, let's see, 45-year history of thinking and then trying to change DNA, that the overarching theme is DNA of larger things, and I, I want to be respectful of uh, our colleagues who work on, let's say, yeast, which is small. DNA of larger things really hates to be changed, and the deep evolutionary why um, has to do with you know the, the, the way that uh, our uh, larger organisms evolve and come together. Smaller things have incredibly plastic genomes. You know, a pathogenic form of E. coli that causes food poisoning. You know, bacteria have about 6,000 genes. If you take the same bacterium, quote-unquote, that is pathogenic, causes food poisoning, uh, and you will see this acquire 2,000 new genes. I'm not kidding. Like, literally, 30% new genes, just because. So that the, the profound evolutionary tension here, the deep why, is be between smaller things that ch love changing their DNA because they're opportunists. Let's try random things and see what happens. And larger things for, which they, for whom the inverse is true. In the biggest sense of the word, the invention of editing has been the introduction of tools and ways and means from the smaller things into the larger things. Nice. That's beautiful. If, if I were to chart, like, thank you for us. I've actually, I've actually never had to think about this before. So this is oh, that's cool. This, this that's what I can offer. Okay, let's uh, maybe we'll do another ten minutes. Is that okay, Fyodor? Um, how about ten? Would exactly ten would be perfect. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So let's discuss other things, kind of out of the the, the you know the not the myopia, but the, the specific technical things with relates to CRISPR. Undoubtedly, you receive tons of applications for, you know, prospective doctoral students and so on. What makes for a great doctoral student and then eventually a great scientist? And I think you already mentioned, you already answered that partly when you were referring to the two Nobel Prize winning ladies when you said curiosity. So I would suspect that just a deep reverence and intellectual curiosity for all things interesting would probably be top on the list. What else would you say are some of the non-negotiable attributes that I must have to be a good scientist. You know, when John Lennon was asked, what is the secret of the Beatles? He said, listen, if I, if we knew we would form four separate bands and manage them. <laughs> um, if there was a one size fits all recipe for a successful uh, or accomplished or just a good scientist, there would be multiple books. And, um, I've had the honor of working, let me think about this, with two Nobel laureates. And um, in, I trained in the lab of one of the most stratospherically brilliant people I've ever met. And currently, I'm, I share faculty duties in, in here at, at the Innovative Genomics Institute and MCB with just insanely brilliant people. And they're all so different. <laughs> Right. Uh, you know, there really are some things that are similar, right? I mean, well, so and now let's try to draw this very, very large Venn diagram. Exactly. Um, they are, I think, all driven by a sense of awe 
between two things, before two things. The first is the beauty of Mother Nature. I, I don't know of a single accomplished scientist who doesn't think that nature is beautiful. And you, you can think about the glory of the rainforest or the exquisite beauty of how what, the structure of DNA. You know, you can think about ecosystem size beauty or beauty at the level of individual molecules. I think this aesthetic awe is, is a very, is a common theme. We are, we, we are all in aesthetic love with what we study. It's just like, yeah. you know, so different people find different things beautiful. So I think that's one. The other is a reverence and inspiration from the fact that all of us are standing on the shoulders of giants. Yes. You know, Famously I, stated by Newton first, correct? It's interesting you should say this because the two Nobel laureates have had, the, it's kind of, it gives me goosebumps to even say this, um, that I've worked with. One is Aaron Klug. Uh, he was the uh, president of the Royal Society. And uh, he actually, when I visited him in Cambridge, he honored me with a visit to Trinity, which is, of course, Newton's college. Uh, believe you me, uh, if there are more out-of-body experiences than having Sir Aaron Klug give you a tour of uh, <laughs> Newton's chambers, it does not wow. get more out of this world. You know, if Paul McCartney gave me a tour of the cavern, which no longer exists in the original, unfortunately, I would be less awed. And um, it's really, uh, it's extraordinary for me to, to just witness uh, this sense in which every scientist feels themselves connected to a, a, several millennia of human intellectual and moral rigor. And again, you know, um, when Jennifer won the Nobel Prize, there was a small celebration, and Jennifer trained with a Nobel laureate, Jack Shostak, and he said something very affecting. He said, listen, people, the only thing better than winning a Nobel Prize is having your student win the Nobel Prize. Wow. <laughs> I know, we all, we all fainted in the best sense of the word. Um, but I think, you know, I, I, I've said uh, a number of occasions uh, what makes Jennifer special. You know, when Newton was asked, uh, how did you discover the laws of motion? He said, by thinking on them continuously. Right. Jennifer comes across as a person who, in Newton-like fashion, has thought continuously for her entire life about a specific set of problems. And I think that that comes from a, from a sense of belonging to a particular human tradition. Right. We, are, we are all craftsmen in a particular human realm. And some are much, 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 the contributions are, could be small, but the sense of honor, of belonging, you know, um, it gives me goosebumps to say that I, you know, I even sat in the same room with Aaron Klug or Jennifer Doudna or, you know, Randy Sheckman, a Nobel laureate uh, uh, here in my department. I, I speak with him. And it's always awesome. It's like in the formal sense of the word. But, but the sense of honor and pride and belonging to that human tradition is a major driver. Is, is really, really, you know, I really, I mean, I love both of your uh, explanations, but your your former one where you talked about the the aesthetic, I really love that one because uh, I think, I mean, so I studied as in my undergrad, I studied mathematics, and mm -hmm. when you when you solve a, a a theorem using a language that is impenetrable to ninety nine point nine percent of the people, I mean, I can't go back to some of the stuff that I solved when I was an undergrad and understand it today. Although I seem, I think I remember most things I've ever studied. And there is there is truly a reverence for, as you said, this this this. It's, I, I, I'm not a very religious person, but I always used to say that God speaks through mathematics because when you understand mathematics and you see some of the beauty of it, it's almost so divine that things can work out that way. I, I can imagine using bioinformatics, you get the same kind of response when you do some sort of uh, genome analysis and so on. So I really appreciate the answer. I have a. A conversation that I'll be holding soon with the philosopher A.C. Grayling. I don't know if you know him. Mm. Uh, and we'll be talking about what is beauty. So maybe I will steal your former answer as part of my, uh, my own answer. Beauty is really being in perpetual awe of nature. I mean, that, and so I guess maybe my next question would be, and, and I'll wrap it up soon. Do, do you think that we can have that kind of aesthetic reverence to the scientific things that we study? without us then falling into the, but therefore this must be God. And I, I, don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot by talking about mm. divine things because I get both people who say, you can't be a scientist and not believe in God when you see how exquisite 
nature works. And of course, the other side says you can't be a scientist and believe in the supernatural. So w where do you fall on that dichotomy? Um, I think the central message that has guided me is um, actually Stephen Jay Gould, the great late evolutionary biologist. And he wrote... You're going to go to the NOMA principle. Uh, close. Uh, he wrote an essay in the New York Times uh, called Leave Darwin Out of It. And the essay is about uh, people who are trying to use evolutionary justification. Oh, you know, humans evolved as hunter-gatherers, and therefore the following set of horrible behaviors uh, are justified. And Darwin says, whatever science does can never decide the morality of morals. So who we are as moral beings is m not just metabiological, it's, it is separate from biology. You know, we as a species have spent 200,000 years evolving in all sorts of ways. Um, we domesticated the dog 35,000 years ago and rice 10,000 years ago and the cow 5,000 years ago. And then all sorts of things happened. And the, our growing appreciation and understanding of what a moral, ethical life is has nothing to do um, with what we understand about the molecular makeup of living things. Um, and that is my central principle in thinking about this. Um, um, I think it was Voltaire, I think, who famously said when asked, where is God, or maybe Laplace, where is God in the, in the model of the universe? And that person said, I, I, had, no, I had no need for the God hypothesis, right? <laughs> a, a practicing molecular biologist uh, has no need for God either to be in awe of nature or to study it. Uh, is there a divine entity that implanted the concept of morality in human brains? I have no idea, but it doesn't matter. Right. Being a moral being is what matters. And whatever the origins of that, we have a duty to that, irrespective of its source. In other words, I... I do not think that saying that the first, the first and second law of thermodynamics are true, that, you know, DNA is a, is a double helix and, um, a, you know, affects living creatures by creating messenger RNA that is translated into protein. All of this atomic level understanding of nature uh, that we now know never was not created. It evolved in Darwinian fashion. The fact that that is true to me has no bearing on the morality of morals. Right. What is wrong is still so right. It is very much in line with Gould, who talked about non-overlapping magisteria. We don't need to put mm -hmm. religion and science against one another. They can coexist and everybody will be happy. Nice way to end this conversation. Stay on the line for a second. Fyodor, what a pleasure to have you on. I could talk to you for hours. Thank you so much for accepting True. the invitation. Truly Cheers. A pleasure. Cheers.